treadmills. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about a treadmill, but one of the first things that comes to my mind is those things you find at yard sales. Because people buy them, don't like them, don't use them, and pawn them off to somebody else who will buy them and don't like them and don't use them. But the purpose of them in our culture, in our society, is to get us healthy, to get us taking those steps so that our Fitbits tell us we've done a good job. But do you know that treadmills have a history? They were used in ancient days to make sure that the mills worked and slaves would, would use something that we, akin to a treadmill, a wheel that they would walk up and cause the, gro- the stones to grind. But they were also used during the early 1800s as mechanisms for punishment for prisoners. That they would spend their days just walking up and down these movable stairways that would um, cause them to be active, but most of the time not see any fruit from their activity. It was just punitive. It was merely punishment. Occasionally, they would be tied to a stone to grind grain, and they might be able to see that, but most of the time, it was a fruitless endeavor for them. It was just for punishment. And once they were all done, they saw no fruit from their endeavor. All they were trying to do was work off the penalty that they owed society. Now that, my friends, is a picture for some people how they approach salvation. They approach salvation as something that they must continue to work for. They approach salvation as something that they continue to have to provide for themselves. And it it oftentimes takes the form, two different distinct forms. One, before someone comes to faith, this is the person, they are the one who he thinks he must clean himself up before he comes to Christ. Now that is a fruitless endeavor, is it not? Because no one in their own strength can clean themselves up enough to come to Christ with their own righteousness. But yet there's even one that is more difficult, and that's the person who has come to Christ and who struggles to apply the promises of God, so they struggle with their assurance. Now one is a futile endeavor. You cannot come to Christ on your own righteousness. You must come to Christ as you are, depending on him and him alone and the promises of God for him to do the cleaning, for him to do the transformation. But once one has come to Christ, there is another person who thinks that he or she must keep themselves clean in order to stay in Christ. You see the difference? They've already put their faith and trust in Christ, but because, and this can happen for many reasons, I'm not not here this morning to flesh out all those reasons, at least not yet, but just to know that there are people who sometimes they don't rest in the assurance that they are saved because what they are constantly thinking is they have to keep themselves at a certain level of holiness and righteousness or they will lose Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the one who professes Christ but doesn't ever pursue righteousness. That's another case. If you're here this morning and you have professed faith in Christ and you call yourself a believer, but you're still, you're, you're not in, as Luke told us this morning, you, you could have just preached part of my sermon this morning. God is glorious, isn't he, to us? When, when your prepared message just goes right in line with what's happening in our sermon text, that the man that, or woman that Luke talked about, that their relationship with their sin is the same today as it was two or three or four years ago or two or three or five days ago. 
That's a different category. I'm talking about the one who sometimes thinks that they have to live a certain way or they lose the Christ they've gained by coming in repentance and faith. Both of those are a misunderstanding of the promises of God. Because God promises something different. Now, if you remember last week, and you can just turn here, be ready for this, turn to Isaiah 55. Just set your eyes on the text for a moment as we remind ourselves from where we've come from last week. We made it through a portion of Isaiah 55. We'll cover the rest of it today. But in God's sovereign grace to us, it allows us to look at the second half of Isaiah 55 with a different application than I was prepared to do last week. But let's remember where we've come. Look at your text as I walk us through just very briefly as we saw the gospel presented in in just full color in Isaiah 55. In verse one, we see that repetitive word, come, 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 beginning with hoy, listen. Listen, get our attention. Remember the salesman in the marketplace trying to outwit all the other salesmen and get your attention more than anyone else. But there's one seller in the marketplace who's offering something free. So the call is to everyone to come, right? Everyone to come. Everyone to come to the waters. He who has no money. uh, If you're thirsty, come to the waters. If you don't have any money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So there is a price, but we don't pay it. The offer is to come. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry, if you're looking for a blessing, the offer is for everyone, not just Jews, but everyone to come. And, and the, the promises of the messianic servant are, are brought out and just dangled in front of everyone. But they're only going to be desired by some. Now, some may want those blessings. Some may want those blessings and, and they want them just for fleshly ideas. They want them just because they want their life to be better. But they're not going to come in the right way. And Isaiah knows that. So Isaiah is telling everyone, if you're thirsty, come. The price has been paid. The price has been paid. That's what Isaiah 53 made clear to us. All the fourth servant song, that the the suffering servant would come and suffer in place of his people so that they would have life. But also, he challenges in verse two, "Why, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So the question is, you're seeking satisfaction. Why on earth would you do it for any, in, in any way that doesn't bring that satisfaction? You need to come and drink of what will cure your thirst and make you more thirsty and cure it again. That's what you need to come to. But then he tells us that there is a way to come. This isn't just, well, you give the invitation and anybody who decides to come, no matter what their motives, no matter what their heart is like, that's not what's being brought. There is qualification here. Listen to verse three. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that, you, that your soul may live. So there is a requirement to hear. And it's to listen well. It's not just to hear the words and let them go in one ear and out the other, but it's the biblical way of hearing. You hear with an eye toward obedience, with, a high, with an eye toward doing what you hear. 
and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you do not know you shall, shall run to you, and a, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh, your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you." Now remember, we went through this in some detail that we've already talked about other covenants in, in chapter 54. Now we have this covenant that's brought. It's, it's brought with the covenant to David, but we quickly move from David to David's greater son. Remember, we move to David's greater son, the Messiah, and what God is doing through him to bring a people that he did not know and we said that this, this idea is not that the, that the Messiah doesn't have any omniscience. The idea is that what the scriptures say, that Israel was the only people that he knew in that loving affection in old covenant terms. But now all who come, those who are even part, not part of Israel who come, get the blessings of this if they come rightly. Now, there's much more in that little passage there, but you can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you weren't able to, if it's new to you or you didn't hear it. But now we have where it gets personal. This is where the old, old uh, saints would say the preacher has gone from preaching to meddling, right? The offer is to come. It's very sweet. I am thirsty. I am hungry. And you're offering food that is different than anything. But there is a requirement. Look at verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So the implication is that's not always going to be available. There will come a time where you will not be able to turn. Whether that's because you harden your heart beyond and, and you, you are the one who has demonstrated that you will never turn to Christ because your heart is hardened. Or if Jesus returns and returns to consummate his kingdom. There is a limited time for you to respond. And then it tells us how they are to seek. Let the wicked forsake his, mark this, way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So in our thoughts and in our action, we are to forsake anything that is not godly, that is not of Christ. We are to forsake everything that is our own works righteousness that we are clinging on to. We are to forsake everything, whether we think we need to be cleaned up, we forsake the, the idea that we can clean ourselves up and we turn to the Christ who will, based on his efficacious work, do what is required to bring us to God. And then there's the promise. And look at it, it's a command and a promise. Do this, let him return to Yahweh, the end of verse seven, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So you see the command, come in this way, you must, and when you do, you receive, and you receive these benefits. Stand, if you will, and let's read the rest of this um, as we enter in to today's text. I'm going to start in verse 7, or verse 6, and we'll pick up in verse 8 for this morning, but let's start in verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For... My thoughts, 
are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Now, I've talked already about one group of people who should be encouraged by this text, those who um, are waiting to come to Christ, who, who think there's no way that I can be forgiven of my sin. There's, there's no way that God would ever do this. I can't even fathom a God who would forgive the sin of someone like me. Or maybe someone who's already come to Christ who is struggling to believe and appropriate the promises of God that he does what he says he will do. But also, the word here is for us as we live in this life. All the things we just sang about, that we're trusting in God, we're trusting, trusting in Christ as a sure and steady anchor, we're trusting in, in God that even though the world looks crazy and upside down and turned upside down and broken and sick, that we are trusting in our worthy God because he is the savior and he is the sovereign over all. So th those of us who are walking in this life need reminded of the promises of God, of the promise that his word is powerful. It is efficacious, as we might say, and it will accomplish what God intends it to do. Because as Luke talked about this morning, it can be very discouraging in ministry of the word. No matter what kind of ministry of the word you're in, the ministry of the word to your family, the ministry of the word in those who you disciple, the ministry of the word as you uh, preach the gospel to people that don't yet know Christ or teach in Sunday school, whatever it is that you do with the word, it can be discouraging. And the most way it can be discouraging, if you're honest with yourself, is in your own life. <clears throat> Because you know the word and you're having trouble appropriating it. You know the word and you're having trouble believing the promises of God. Well, Isaiah is speaking to all of us in all of those situations today to encourage us that God has a plan carried out in Christ, consummated when Christ returns. And that equips and, and fuels our faithfulness in this life. Well, last week... As we began this sermon, we, we, are, we are introduced to Yahweh's love for the nations through a threefold description 
of the way to eternal life. And we covered a lot of this last week. The first description, the one desiring eternal life must come to partake of the free gift of the servant's work. So that it's all couched in commands. And remember that we pointed out we have these imperatives, these commands. Come, buy, eat, listen, incline, hear, seek, call. Those are all commands. Those are not just uh, good suggestions that on a good day, these are things that you might want to do. They are commands, and that must, it, we must have a response to those. Secondly, the second description of the way to eternal life, the one desiring eternal life must listen and learn about entering the covenant made with the king and his kingdom, verses 2 through 5. In the third description, we started, the one desiring eternal life must receive Yahweh's gifts of compassion and pardon. First, by seeking and calling on Yahweh. We saw that in verse 6. Secondly, by repenting, which means forsaking his own way and wisdom and turning to Yahweh. We saw that in verse 7. And remember, we said way and wisdom are our own thoughts and our own life. Everything about us. It's, it's not just the external. It's not just the, the, um, the fake righteousness that we may want to put out or this, this humble brag that we want people to think we're living a holy life. This is the God of the universe searching our soul. So it's our thoughts and our way. That's how we must come. We must come by seeking and calling on Yahweh, by repenting. And the third qualification for coming is by understanding the character and promises of Yahweh. This is where we pick up today in verse 8. And I want you to see, we're coming into two very famous passages of Scripture, aren't we? These are passages that you know, that you have quoted about the word of the Lord and the faithfulness. It will not come back void, as some of your uh, um, translations say, or without accomplishing what God purposed in the, the giving of his word. Um, that's very famous. And also that his thoughts and ways are high, higher than our thoughts and ways. We, we quote those, we use those, but they, they fit in this context in a particular way. Remember, we're always looking at the context of our, of our scripture passage. So look at verse 8 as we learn, first of all, that his way and wisdom are greater than ours. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. Now look at how he, st he structures this. In verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Then in verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways and your ways, my neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then in verse 9, we see, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you think Isaiah wants to understand something about our thoughts and ways? Do you think he might have something to say about the way we think and the way we act? and making a direct comparison to the way God thinks and the way God acts. So that is our context here. It is, it is most certainly true that man's ways are not like God's and man's thoughts are not like God's because God's ways and thoughts are higher than, and we, higher than ours and we can apply that in many different ways. It is most certainly true. But the primary way it's being talked to us right now is about salvation, isn't it? It is, if you want salvation, you need to turn away from your ways and thoughts, and you need to embrace my ways and thoughts. And as we progress, we're going to find out we know that through the Word of God. 
So that's our context here. The challenge is you must give up your way. You must give up your thinking and your life if you are going to come to the servant. If you are going to come to salvation and be, have your thirst quenched and your hunger met, if you are going to do that, you must come repenting of your own life, thoughts, life, actions, and you must come trusting in mine. Now, that is right at the beginning we're challenged because if we're, if we're tempted not to believe that, let's say you're one of those people who think you still have to clean yourself up. You just can't come to Christ because you're too filthy. Well, you need to forget about your ways and your thinking and your actions and turn to the one who has promised that when you come in a certain way, he will, what's he say in verse seven? Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he will abundantly pardon. You, you need to set aside your own thinking. You need to set aside your own actions of ever thinking that your own filthy rags righteousness could prepare you to be in the presence of an almighty, holy God. But thankfully, he's made the promise because his thoughts and his ways are different than ours. He's made the promise that if you come the way he commands, you will be abundantly pardoned by his compassion. Now, for those of you who are struggling with assurance on a regular basis, and I think most of us in this room will struggle at one time and another with assurance. When we do that, why do we usually struggle? We usually struggle because we're inward looking and say, well, God can't do that for me because look what I just thought. Look what I just did. Now, when that happens, what we usually do is just embrace those thoughts and let them take us wherever they want to take us. Our unworthiness, God would never do that for us, Christ would never do that for me, and we should stop at what? Our unworthiness. You were never worthy. It was Christ who was worthy. We were never worthy. And when we let those thoughts take us down that road, Satan has us. He's dangled a hook, we have chomped on it, and he's pulling us down through the slough of despair. That's what he's doing. And so we need to remind ourselves, yes, we may need to repent. Listen, those thoughts, those ways that are sinful, we need to repent of those. And we as believers are the only ones who can do that, amen? No believer, all the believer can do, a non-believer can do, all a non-believer can do is turn away from those things so they don't get caught and don't have penalties to pay. But we, we've been redeemed by the living God. He has set his affections on us, his compassion, he's forgiven us of our sin. Even the sin that we are tempted to say, well, he can't ever forgive that. He already has forgiven it if you have come to him with a repentant faith and faithful repentance. Remember, that's how he said to come. And if we come that way, the promise is that he will do this. Now, does God change his mind? Oh, come on, does God change his mind? No. His promises are yes and amen in Christ. So that's our self-talk. We, we talk to ourselves and say, self, that's not true. It has nothing to do with my righteousness that places me right with Christ. It has everything to do with God's affection on me in his son. And I did nothing to deserve it and I can do nothing to lose it. That's the way we talk to ourselves. Because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Our thoughts are self-destructive very often. Our thoughts are back to our own worthiness instead of his worthiness, our own goodness instead of his goodness. And he says right here in verse 8 and 9 that we are not to get caught up in those ways of thinking. Look back at it again. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For, and then he gives another reason. Notice all these fours. Four begins verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. So begins verse 11. Four begins verse 12. So these are all connected to the promise. Forsake your ways and thoughts and turn to Yahweh, that is, turn to his servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is his living word that will accomplish his purpose. If we do that, we will receive his blessing and abundantly and his abundant pardon because of all these things that follow. Because even though we can't imagine it, his thoughts and ways are not like ours. And then we have the description. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So this perfect description of the, how much difference is there between the heavens and the earth? It's infinite. It's an infinite difference. Our God is infinitely different than we are. He is infinitely different in his thinking and his actions. Now think about what we learn about God just in this little section. In his thoughts, do we know all of his thoughts? That's the transcendent God, right? That is, that is the God who is other, who is out there. I mean, we, we cannot even think that we can think all of his thoughts. When God gives us what he's thinking through his actions, we're still stumbling over how to understand it sometimes, aren't we? Do you fully understand the incarnation? Now, now that's God's work. It's God's ways that flows from his perfect, righteous, sovereign, and beautiful thought. But we can't fully understand that. We accept it by faith. So even the thoughts that are demonstrated in his ways, we struggle with sometimes. So we are trusting that because what have we learned about his character all the way through Isaiah? He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who is holy. He is perfectly just. Now, and we've also learned about his compassion all the way through the book, have we not? All the way through, offered, offered to kings, some kings that don't take it, other kings try to manipulate it, offered to God's people, and yet they're still taken into captivity. God's desire to save is on full display all the way through Isaiah. And we would be right in thinking if we thought like humans, well, there's enough sin in Israel alone in all of Isaiah. He's not going to forgive that. He's, he's commanded them to be obedient and they're perpetually always disobedient. Why would he ever forgive their sin? You see how we can fall into our thoughts? And if we're going to do that over Israel, how much more do we do that over ourselves? There's no way he can forgive me. So we're reminded the difference between heaven and earth, it's... It's a way to say, not pull out your measuring tape and see if you can figure it out. It's a way to say, there's no way to compare. But yet compare, he does, doesn't he? Right there in verse nine. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is a comparison, but it's a comparison with, with this infinite God with his finite creation. Now, if God is the God represented to us in Isaiah, and he sent his Messiah to live the life that he would affirm in his perfect life and death and resurrection and ascension that that was enough. That was enough to pay for the sins of all the people that would repent and, and turn to him. If that God and that faithful God is speaking, why in the world 
would we ever trust our own wisdom? Why in the world would we ever trust the wisdom from below, the earthly wisdom? Why would we not always look to the wisdom from above and trust in his thoughts and his ways? Because not only are we talking about his transcendence, but we're talking about his closeness, right? His eminence. Because that's what we get to see, eminence with an eye. That, that's what we get to see. God is thinking perfect, good, creative thoughts, and it works out of him in perfect, good, creative ways. And so we get to see what God is intending to do by his ways. And he tells us very clearly, forget about your own ways. Just forget about those and trust in mine. Now, we might say, well, how? Is it only because what we learned about in Isaiah? Is that the only reason that you can give? Well, we need to understand that we trust in men's words all the time, don't we? the word of men and women, and you've never been let down by another man or woman, have you? I just read, I just read about a cruise that was supposed to leave uh, November 30th, a three-year world cruise. $29,000 a year is all it will cost you, and you can be on this cruise that covers 130,000 miles, 375 ports, 135 countries. You're supposed to leave on the 30th. Everyone who was on that cruise got a letter November 17th saying it's canceled. Now imagine what plans were put into place to be gone for three years. One woman said she sold her apartment, her furniture, her clothes, and her TV to pay for her retirement cruise. Her retirement cruise. Some of, these are, are, some of the passengers were waiting in Istanbul. This was a Turkish company that was offering this cruise. That's where it was originally supposed to take off from. And a few days before they found out that it was canceled, they found out a few days before that that it was starting in Amsterdam. So some of the people had already made their way to Istanbul, and they're broke, and now they have to get to Amsterdam, all because they trusted the word of man. And all it came down to is this company said they were going to buy a ship. And that ship was going to carry this cruise. And then they found out that because of all the turmoil in the Middle East, no one would back them financially. So the 40 to $50 million ship that they were going to buy did not materialize. One passenger said, I am very sad, angry, and lost. I had the next three years of my life planned to live an extraordinary life. And now I have nothing. I'm having a hard time moving forward. Someone else said, I was proud and feeling brave. Now I don't trust anyone or anything. I know it will work out and life will go on, but I am uncertain of the direction it will go. Another one said, I never imagined being in this place as a senior citizen. They put their faith and trust in men, and faith and trust in men, including you, can fail. And our temptation is to say God must be the same when he's not because his ways and his thoughts are different than ours. And how do we know? Because it continues on in the text. Isaiah, I think, knows that we can be weak in our faith. I think he knows that this should be enough, isn't it? God said, come in this way and you will receive my compassion and my pardon. The God who created the universe saying that to us, that should be enough. Amen? But Isaiah goes on. 
Not only his ways and wisdom are greater than ours, his word will accomplish his purpose. Look at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So let's just see the metaphor that's being used. Uh, It's saying that God sends forth rain and and snow, and what that will do is water the ground. It saturates it, is what the language says, and it will provide then from that seed to the sower, which turns into bread for the one who will eat. This is God who does that. Now, they're not denying the principle of evaporation. I think even in the text, it assumes that that the word comes back to God, but it comes back to him according to his purpose, accomplishing what he intends. And when he sends that out, he's intending it for a purpose because even when we farm our crops well, it's God who is in charge of of the growth and the increase in that. So that principle is being brought up to us. Look back at your text, verse 11. So... Because this is it, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose or propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when God speaks, it's going to accomplish what he intends it to accomplish. Now that covers a lot of theological ground, doesn't it? It doesn't matter whether it's in his actions of sending forth rain and snow and what he intends that to do, but now we've moved from the actions to the word behind the actions. So when God creates the heavens and the earth, how does he do it? Does he snap his fingers? He could have, but what did he do? He spoke it into existence. We have Psalms that remind us that he spoke the world into existence, like Psalm 33, 6 through 9, that tells us that God created by his word. It's a constant theme in the prophets that God speaks. When the prophets speak, we're reminded over and over and over that it is Yahweh speaking through the prophets. The mark of a true prophet is what? If it comes true. Because everything that God says will come true. Everything he intends will happen. We've already seen this in Isaiah and several times, haven't we? He challenged all the idolaters and all their idols. Tell me what's going to happen. Tell me what happened in the past and why it happened. And what did we hear in there? Crickets, remember? There was no response because no one can do that. These false gods can't do what God does because he orchestrates it all. He is the total and complete sovereign of the universe. But it even goes further for us, especially in the context of this suffering servant, which is where we are in Isaiah 54 and 5, right? This is the application of the work of the servant that we saw in 52.13 through the end of 53 in that fourth servant song. Think of familiar passages. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the context of the servant, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the one that these four servant songs are about, God is sending his word into the world to accomplish what he intends the word to accomplish. 
So Jesus comes as the word because God spoke his word and, it, and his work will accomplish everything that he accomplished. And we saw that earlier in one of the other servant songs. Turn back, if you will, to, to chapter 49. We could go back to many places in Isaiah. I'm trying just to recall our reference from 72 or three sermons, however long we've been here, um, to remind us what we've learned in Isaiah. But remember in this servant song in Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says Yahweh, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Now remember, this help here is, is not just, well, I'm just kind of pushing you along a little bit. This is God's work in the servant to accomplish what they're both intending to accomplish. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of the Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens and earth, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So this is the language we've been seeing, especially since chapter 40 that begins with what? Comfort, comfort my people. This is the outworking of that promise here that we see back in Isaiah 56 and carried out in Jesus, the servant whom God sends, who is the word who dwelt among us. And when he is among us, we see God. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. But it's not only Jesus who is the word, it is the word itself. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness with a purpose, right? God's word carries out its purpose. It does not come back void. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God speaks his word in Christ. God speaks his word in the scripture and it has a purpose. So when we are receiving his word, we know that the promise is it will equip us for every good work that Ephesians tells us are planned out when? Beforehand. This is God's word with a promise. What does that tell us when we read his word and, our, and, our, and the word crushes us with conviction? That, that should remind us of the promise that if we're not being disciplined by God through that conviction that we're not his child, it's meant to lead us into that repentance because it is preparing us for all the good work that he has for us. Isaiah 29, 14 is quoted in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the gospel, the word of God, carried out by Christ in his actions and his thoughts, his perfect sinless thoughts and actions, it has a purpose. It will condemn and it will save. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? 
That's the wisdom we're to give away, that we're to give up and turn away from. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in his wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of the message preached, or what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God sends his word, Jesus Christ, and through his word, we know that it will accomplish what he intends. And all those he intends to save will be saved. And all of those that are not going to come to him, as Isaiah tells us, will meet their own judgment. Because what are they looking for? The wisdom of men and the ways of men. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, just one example of the word of God drawing those who are called. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, this is talking about Jews and Gentiles in this, in this section in Isaiah 1, but it's also talking about these promises of God all the way through that long section that begins Isaiah, or, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see the progression. You heard the word of truth, God's word. It accomplished what he intended and you were saved and your inheritance is now before you being sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day that Christ returns. God's word is powerful. So anytime that we expect things to be done according to our own wisdom and our own thoughts and ways, we need to remind ourselves that God doesn't think that way. And aren't you thankful? Because what you and I would want is vengeance, isn't it? We want justice for everybody else and grace for us. That's the way the gospel works when we think about our ways and our thoughts. Look back at verse 11 in Isaiah 55. My word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, Yahweh says he is watching over his word to perform it. Isn't that a beautiful picture of this? He's watching over his word to perform it. His word is not just meant to sit out there. His word is meant to perform. It is meant to accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. Now, what it, let's just get down to brass, brass tacks. The main purpose of how this affects us every single day. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own, your own thoughts. It is your own understanding, but in Isaiah's terms, what is that? It's your own thoughts. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will you, you see already where we're derailed if we think of our thoughts and our ways. 
He will. Whatever's coming next, God's going to do it. So what do we already know about his thoughts and ways? It's good, right? And our thoughts and ways, not so good. So if you're the one that inserts, you do these things and I will, you're already off the rails. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's Isaiah put to application for us, isn't it? That's this principle in Isaiah to say, as we walk and as we live in the daily whoop and warp of life, all the decisions that we make, all the actions that are going to flow from our thoughts, they need to be completely dependent on the one whose ways and wisdom are higher and better and greater than ours because ours are sinful. Now, we're going to get a little bit even more clear for this, but we can have the desires of our hearts, right? Can't we? Yes, we can, if they're the desires of his heart. Proverbs 16:1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the spirit. Commit your way to Yahweh, and your plans will be established. Isn't that beautiful? Why will our plans be established? Because God's word does not return void. And if we're committing our ways to him, he is perfect, he is righteous, he is sovereign. Committing them to him means that his ways then become our ways, right? We're freed from the tyranny of our own thoughts and ways. This is Isaiah put to flesh, put to action for us. Proverbs 21, 1 and 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the heart. Now, here's the second time we are seeing this idea, and we could go to about six or seven more places in Proverbs that talks about Yahweh weighing the heart. This deals with our own thinking and our own wisdom. God knows everything we're thinking. So this, this false humility that we tend to want to stand behind so that people think we're righteous because we have family worship or our kids memorize scripture or that we don't uh, you know, smoke, drink, or chew or date girls that do. We don't watch certain movies. We don't do all these different things so that people will know that we follow Jesus. Now, they should know that we follow Jesus by those things. But the greater thing is that we are constantly submitted to him and his way. That every day we grow more in love with Christ. And so the, the ways of the world become extremely dim every single day. Constantly dimming in our eyes because Christ is moving forward. His beauty is moving forward. And as that happens, then the way that we are committing to the Lord pleases him and he establishes those steps according to his will and his way. And we know this, Psalm 37, delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you want the desires of your heart? Delight yourself in God and his son, Jesus Christ. Make everything in this world mean nothing to you if it's not granted to you and blessed by Christ in your life. If God takes away something from you, hallelujah. Is he worthy then? He is worthy then, right? He takes it away for his glory and our benefit. And that just lets us even more delight ourselves in Christ. The ways of the world will drag you down into worrying about the ways of the world, will they not? Quickly, delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. 
trust in him and he will act. His thoughts, his ways worked out in us. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And you said, I thought you said we didn't have any righteousness. We don't have any wisdom to decide justice. We are delighting ourselves in Yahweh. We are committing our ways to him. Now we could go on to many other places and I, I could have just come up with 10 different situations where Isaiah fits, but the scriptures are the one that's powerful, right? The scriptures take the same idea over and over and over and over and remind us that it's all about God and not about us. If you want delight, if you want your heart and all your heart's desires to be satisfied, make them the desires that God has placed there. Commit those ways to him and they will be established because God's word does not come back void. It always accomplishes his purpose. We're coming in the way that God commands, repenting of our will, our ways, our wisdom, accepting his ways, and all of this is the reminder of his character. His character and his promises are what drive us forward to be able to know that when he promises that our repentance leads to his mercy, that he will never backtrack on that. His ways and wisdom are greater than ours. His word will accomplish his purpose. And finally, his work will bring eternal joy and peace. Look at verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Now in our context, the immediate fulfillment of this is coming out of the exile, right? God has made that promise. And yet we have seen, as we moved into that fourth servant song and then into chapter 54 and 55, that our eyes are lifted much higher than merely a physical release from captivity. So both are true here. Go out in joy and be led forth in peace. This is that idea again of the Exodus and that language that's coming from the historical Exodus and now another example of it from captivity, all pushing us forward to remember or to think about the day when we will be led forth out of the captivity to sin because of the work of the Messiah. So this applies to us. We have left that world. We're going out of that world with joy. We're led forth in peace. Well, how does that happen? Well, we learned about that in the, in the uh, fourth servant song, didn't we? In 53 verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his stripes we are healed. The work of Christ brings us peace. Peace with God and peace from man because the work of Christ deals with the sin of those who repent and believe in, in God and believe in all of what he has promised to accomplish in Christ. And then it changes everything. Listen, there are things that you did before you were saved that God wants to light up with a gospel fire. Maybe you're here today and that's the reason you don't want to come to Christ. You think everything that you're doing now that brings you joy will have to go away, and now what? You've, you've just got the church and the words of God? Is that, maybe, you're, maybe you're under that kind of disillusion. Well, I want to tell you, every way God has created you, he will bring to fruition for his glory when you submit your way and your will to Christ. I don't know if you know the story of Chris, Christopher Parkening, but he's a very famous classical guitarist. 
And he is, he, he is probably still known as the greatest classical guitarist um, in the United States. And he, he reached the top of his, his um, career. Um, everybody wanted him to perform. Everybody wanted him to play. And then he got bored. By 30 years of age, he thought he'd accomplished everything. He had nothing more to live for. So he retired from playing. He bought a ranch in Montana. And he started fly fishing. And he became, because he's a driven person, one of the best fly fishers in the country. So all he did was replace one compulsion with another. And he still wasn't satisfied. So he was visiting Southern California and some friends invited him to church. That church happened to be John MacArthur's church. And when he was there, he heard the gospel for the first time and he was saved. And then he realized that all of the giftings that he had as a guitar player were to be used for his glory. And he went back in to recording again and made some of his better recordings even after that because now he did it for the glory of God, not for his own glory. Because your own glory will not satisfy you. You will become bored with that. You will become lonely and unsatisfied when your own glory reaches those kinds of heights. And now he does this for the glory of God. That's what happens to our lives. When we're freed from sin, we are going out with joy and peace. All of that brought by the work of the Savior because now we have peace with God. And all of what we've learned about, about his word not coming back void even in our lives takes this bigger picture that we now become the way God is glorified because of the way that we live our lives. Look back at verse 13. Well, verse 12, it uses the same language. We've moved into this creation language that we've seen all the way through Isaiah. And for verse 12 and 13, remember, oftentimes the destruction that sin brings to God's people brings that destruction upon the land and the city that they're living in as well. And when God promises restoration, it's often brought to us with the restoration of the city or the restoration of the land and the foliage and, and all of that. We have that same kind of language here. So all the mountains and hills are before you. They're breaking forth in singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Remember, Romans 8 tells us that creation is waiting for the redemption of the sons of men as well, right? For the creation's redemption. That's why Jesus is able to, to say to those who are well, on his triumphal entry when people are praising him and the leaders come and say, you need to shut your people up. He says, you could shut them up, but what will praise him? The rocks will praise him. Because they have enough sense to know that it's the redemption of the sons of man, which is the completion of the word of God, accomplishing everything he intends it to be, brings about the creation's redemption as well. That's what's pictured here in verse 12. Verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Now that is just a way of saying that what is, what do you think of when you think of thorns? Think of the curse? The thorns in the garden. It's a way of talking about what is here now, cursed, being completely restored in the new heavens and new earth. This verse moves us that there is a purpose for us living now because God has a purpose for the new heavens and new earth when everything is completed that Christ is set about to redeem. Because he's redeeming not only the sons of men, but he's redeeming the creation as well. And that will all come to fruition when, in Isaiah's picturesque language, the thorn becomes the cypress and the briar becomes the myrtle. That's the time talking about where there will be no more sin. That's why we have come out spiritually 
but yet we're still dealing with our sin, right? The same principle we've looked at. We've been saved from the power and penalty of sin, but not the presence of sin until Christ returns. So this is the time when it is all restored. And it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So what does the it refer to? And what shall make a name for Yahweh? It's the restored creation. That's what God is doing. He's bringing glory to himself. And we have an already and not yet picture in us. There'll come a time in the new heavens and new earth that we've talked about before. We talked about it last week. I'm not going to take the time today. But that, that, that creation where there is no sin, there's nothing unclean that will enter in. The kings of the earth that are righteous will come and bring their wealth to the king of the universe. That's the time where sin is no more and there's no more sin, suffering, death, or dying. But even now, we have a foretaste of that in the already and not yet because our lives are a witness to the glory of God. As we live, we witness to the glory of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is in Yahweh. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Or Psalm 1, which we sing often in our congregation. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You see what he doesn't do? His way is not marked by wickedness, right? But his wisdom, what God alone knows, is marked by godliness. He doesn't sit, <clears throat> walk, stand, or sit with wicked sinners or scoffers, but he delights in the law of the Lord. So when we delight in Yahweh, he gives us the desires of our heart because the desires of our heart become his desires. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Why? Because the word of the Lord carries out what God intends it to do. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment for sinners in, <clears throat> nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is all tied to the same thoughts that Isaiah is bringing. You and I are a witness to the world using the agricultural metaphor that has been referenced even here of the rain coming down <clears throat> and accomplishing what God intends it to do. You and I are doing that. When we submit our thinking and our lives to the Lord, the dying world sees us as fruitful. And that fruitfulness will, for those that God is working and saying, come to me, and they are truly thirsty, and they come with repenting um, faith and faithful repenting, and they come to receive God's mercy, oftentimes it's because we are like trees planted by the water brook. We are the ones who are dependent upon him and living in such a way that brings glory to him, and we are the first examples they see of the glory of God that their thirst can actually be quenched. 
with all of these promises for us to live according as Isaiah has said. And remember, all Isaiah has done is give the character and work of God as the foundation for our trust that if we come to him, as he says, we will receive his compassion. All of this is just, it's merely the character of God presented to us so that we trust in God and all of his works. And see, many of us, every day, we act as if, it's going to date me, but some of you will smile with me. Do you have any VHS tapes up in your attic? They're probably non-existent anymore because those tapes melt. They deteriorate. And we think of our salvation often as that. We got to get those tapes out of the attic and we got to fix them up. Maybe we need to transfer them to a digital file so we can keep them until later. You're probably never going to watch them. i just tell you that right now. But that's what we're thinking. We have to go fix them up so we can preserve them. That's exactly the opposite of the way we should be thinking about our faith. God is the one who's already fixed us up according to the righteousness that he demands in his perfect and holy character because the servant came and accomplished what the father sent him to do because his word never comes back void. So that encourages us in our life, in all these ways that we talked about, to to live according to his glory and to live as examples, preaching the gospel. I don't know about you, but there are times that I don't feel like preaching the gospel to someone. You ever have that? Maybe there are times that you're fearful of preaching the gospel to someone. You're just a handler of the word that's not going to come back void. God will do his work through you preaching to that person about their sin and a need for Christ and the perfect work, life, death, and resurrection of Christ so that they, if if God is drawing them at that time, his word will not come back void. Then you are the one who gets to give that. Now, maybe you're planting, maybe you're watering, maybe you're harvesting, but why would we ever be fearful if it's the word of God and it's God's business to do what he intends it to do? Because his word sometimes brings judgment. And we should be okay with that because his ways and his wisdom are different than ours. I need to remind you of one more thing. If you are outside of Christ today, this is the time you need to come in the way that Isaiah has brought to us. He's shown you the satisfaction to be found in Christ. And he's shown you that Christ is the only one who can bring about the compassion of God and forgive your sin. That's it. But he's also shown you that you must come repenting of your own ways of thinking and living and trusting in him. And it's been commanded. And that time is short. It may not last any longer than the end of this sermon. So today is the day that you need to come. I read about a story this week. It's a classical Russian novel in which this man, who's a rich man, He is well-to-do, and he meets a beautiful young woman named Tatiana. But he's so full of himself that she tries to show affection to him, and he says, she's not going to satisfy me for very long. I need need an older, more, more, more wise, more sophisticated woman. And he turns away from her, all because of his own selfishness. And a few years later, he walks into a party, and he sees the most beautiful woman that he's ever seen in his life. It's Tatiana, but it's her wedding day. And she is now with another man, and he is overwhelmed with grief 
Because at a point not very long ago, she was willing to give her affection to him. And he was thinking in his own wisdom, acting in his own ways, and turned her away. And now it's too late. Because now she's given her affection to another. There will come a day where it will be too late for you to turn to Christ. I don't know when that day is, but it will come. And so if you are outside of Christ today, today is the day that you must come. Remember all the imperatives, the commands. You must come, buy, eat, listen, incline, hear, seek, and call upon the Lord today. For today is the day of your salvation. For the rest of us, we need to remain faithful because we're almost home, right? This is momentary light affliction for the eternal weight of glory that is ahead of us. And if you're the one who is constantly struggling with appropriating the promises of God, just memorize this text. And every time you're challenged with, I might lose Christ, remind yourself that his promises are fixed and his word will not come back void. And if you have repented and come to him as he commands, your inheritance is secure and he will not change his mind. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us, your care for us, the concern that you have for us expressed in your son. <clears throat> and it is amazing to us, Lord, when we try to contemplate your character, your thoughts and your way, that we so often compare them to ours in a way that tries to bring you down to us. And I pray that this morning you have freed us from that sinful way of thinking and that now we want our thoughts and our ways to rise to yours because you revealed yourself in your word. You revealed what you command of us and how we are to live in your word. And you've promised us that your word will not come back void. So help us, strengthen us, draw those to yourself today that, that you intend to draw, that they might come and receive eternal life. Strengthen those who struggle with assurance of their salvation and motivate and encourage us, Lord, to live according to your glory because we are now the, the witness to your everlasting love to us and your everlasting love to all those that you will save in Christ. So thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.